0: Welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast and boy we've got a good one for you today on a beautiful spring morning in London overlooking the River Thames. Summer is here, well nearly anyway. Our guest today has five decades in motor racing, can you imagine that? He really has, he's been in motor racing for five decades and he comes from a little part of the south coast of England that used to be the sort of epicentre of international motor racing. Let me give you a few examples. David Purley, John Watson, Derek Bell, Church Farm Racing, Leck Refrigeration Formula One. I mean, you know, the land between Bognor Regis and Littlehampton produced some fantastic talent. Did it not? My girl, welcome to our
1: podcast. First of all, thanks for having me. I assume you couldn't get anybody famous. We couldn't. So no, no. No, we couldn't. <laughs> sorry. So I'm here. Um, yeah, it was pretty special. Um, I always figured it was because none of us could get a proper job. So, but yeah, it was a great time. And um, I obviously worked with all of those guys one way or the other. I mean, John, for instance, uh, asked if he could rent a room for a night and stayed four years. Um,
0: <laughs> did, he pay the, did he pay the rent?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, slowly. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he uh, that went right through his time when he sort of just was in Formula 2, he came uh, to us at that time, right up until the time he earned enough money to buy his own flat, which was 100 metres down the road, (laughs) so (laughs) we still fed him, Um, (laughs) but yeah, and Pearlie, obviously, that was something special, Uh, it was a special time, Um, I always swore, and he actually agreed with me, that he only ever had his own race team, because it was an extension of his army life, and it was his own little team, it was his own platoon, and that's the way he used to tackle it he had no real interest in motorsport oh. he didn't know anything about motor racing um <laughs> uh, he you know he just really didn't he didn't bother to read magazines yeah. didn't care what people thought about him he just loved motor racing we took him testing one day at uh, goodwood and it was the first time we'd run skirts on a car and he got to the end of the pit road stopped came back and he said car's broken into it's dragging on the ground we said, David, <laughs> We said, David. these cars have got sk- skirts, you're going to get that. Oh, right, OK, fine. <laughs> he hated testing. We took him to, after he'd had his big shunt at Silverstone, we arranged a sort of very private test day with the second car at Goodwood. And uh, he said, what did I do here before? So we told him the time and he said, right, OK, fine. So I've got to find out if I'm still good enough. Yeah, yeah, that's it, David. Well, about the third lap, he did what he'd done before. We showed him the board. And he braked, at the end, we had the place to ourselves, he braked, got to the end of the pit road and drove the wrong way down the pit road and said, well, that's it then, isn't it? <laughs> I said, well, we're gonna do some more running and, you know, no, 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 that's it, I'm okay. He only wanted to race, he was, he was quite yeah. remarkable. <laughs> uh, of course, Derek was through the uh, uh, formless, well, the earliest, really, was about 65, 66 with Derek. I went along sort of and helped I Was a go for really. And then it gradually grew until Derek went off to Ferrari. And then uh, old Colonel Hinder asked me if I'd run the team when we got the M10A from McLaren, forgetting. So, but, uh, yeah, Derek was special. Derek was guy at the right place at the wrong time.
0: Sure, I mean, the, all three, you know, John Watson, Derek Bell, David Purley, all three had had, had talent, They didn't they? I mean, they had real... They were, they were quite special guys in their own different ways, weren't they? I mean, Derek with sports cars, John... You know, had some great Grand Prix's. And David, on his day, was, was a fantastic driver, wasn't he?
1: David was talented. He wasn't a top-line driver. No. I mean, being honest, he wasn't. Um, if he gave him a good car, yeah. he'd wring its neck. But if the car wasn't good, he didn't have the discipline to drive around the problem or yeah. try and help you get over the problem. Yeah. He, would, um, uh, he would just accept the fact that he wasn't going quick. Wattie, for instance, is a different beast altogether. He, um, he was incredibly smooth. But, you know, if this car had a, an ounce of understeer in it, he'd rather be making coffee at home, to be honest. But he, but he, he was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, when he lost the championship, finished second, um, that was all down to his, his shunt at Monza, I think. Um, if he hadn't had that, he'd won the championship. Yeah. Tremendous driver. Oh.
2: Pearlie was unbelievably brave, though, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he was. I mean, and he I'm
2: used to. I mean, the, the thing I've never forgotten. He told me once about the the first the first turn, the first right downhill right hander at Rouen, mm. that he used to scream into his helmet as he was turning into it. Yeah. And he said because that's exactly what we used to do in Aden, you know, okay. going over the top. So when you were saying about the extension of his yeah. army life, that that makes absolute sense.
3: And I think the fact he won the Shime road race in Belgium was it three years on the trot? I mean, yeah. you know, that that was a place for the. Yeah, for the the committed, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: if if anywhere was. We figured that they should have given the place to him. He it that many times, but um, yeah, he was. He was. He was ridiculously brave. But he wasn't a fool. He didn't do daft things. Mm. But he was ridiculously brave. I mean, uh, unfortunately, the thing that killed him was an extension of that because once he'd packed up, he bought two Pitts aerobatic aircraft. Uh, One for him, one for a friend, and they shipped them back from the states. And our workshop in those days used to be on the airfield at Black Refrigeration, and he hired an old boy who was pretty doddery to put them together. And the old boy used to come up and say, "Have you got a spanner? Got <laughs> <laughs> any of those plastic things what tie <laughs> things together?" And I went, oh, fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said to Pearls, "Hey, are you sure about this bloke?" Oh, yeah, yeah. He knows the job. He knows the job. He's no problem. And um, anyway. He fetched somebody down from the um, Philip Morris aerobatic team to fly it first. And the guy said, who built it? And he showed him, he said, I'm not flying it. And Pearls just jumped in it, took it off, and stood it on its tail, and that was it. Then he decided he didn't know how to land it, because the nose (laughs) was so long... (coughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, if you weren't careful, the, and the prop was huge, with its performance, it would dig in the ground. And it, he went round about, I don't know, 50 times before he realised if he kicked it sideways, he could then see and then just drop it in. That's the way he was. I mean, he was unbelievable.
0: Actually, we should explain for, for some people who may be joining us today that he was in the parachute regiment, um, a soldier. Yeah, OK. Mike... Um, there's so much to talk to you about because as as I said you're you know you've had this uh, extraordinary career but can we just find out how it all started? I mean how did you I mean you weren't born into motor racing in any way at all, were you?
1: No, I was born into the license trade. Yeah. My father had pub and I worked in that until I was about 18, 19. Then I was 21, I was in the Guinness Book of Records as the youngest licensee in the country, which you had to be 21 in those days, and I was a licensee when I was 21 and a few days. And then I'd taken up rallying for myself, just club rallying and a little bit. Driving? Yeah.
0: Were you any good?
1: Uh, not good enough. I got very friendly with Roger Clark and sort of uh, one stage with him, well, that he used to have up at his farm, convinced me that uh, I was wasting my money. Um, so <laughs> gave gave that one up. And during that time, I'd, uh, I used to get, from the time I was eight, I used to jump on my bike and ride from Bognor up to uh, Goodwood. Never missed a club meeting, mm-hmm. never missed a thing always used to stand in the same place. I can look at photographs and this little dot, I can pick it out as me (laughs) because I used to be at the chicane where the two fences met, there I was. Um, And I used to love it. And uh, I was up there one day uh, when Derek had his Lotus 31 and he broke the record. 130.6 it was, I think, in those days. And um, my brother-in-law used to work for the local Bognor Bugle or whatever it was called. (coughs) And... um, I used to just pick up the sheets from the office and take them. He'd write a story around them, around what I'd said. And it was the only thing that picked up, and he'd broken the lap record. And I happened to meet him in the pub in Pagham one night, and he said, Oh, yeah, 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 great. And we became friendly, and I got involved with him then. That was about 65, 66.
0: Amazing. So
1: it was, that was pure
2: chance just running
1: into him in the pub. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. It just shows that going to the pub's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> oh, and. Um, I, I was also um, by then. I'd given up the part when I was working at a company called um, Hairspares. They weren't purveyors of wigs. They actually they did things for um, uh, cars, motor accessories. Because in those days, you know, if you wanted an ashtray, it was an extra. <laughs> yes. And uh, radios were definitely well, Paddy extra.
3: Hopkirk switch extensions via Mini, that kind of thing. You were the bloke <laughs> that bought those. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so we we did all that and. Um, through them, I got them to do all sorts of things. When Derek bought the terrible Lotus 41, he wanted it gold and black, and the spray shop did that for him. And then we gave him a bit of sponsorship, and that's really how I got involved with him.
0: I mean, uh, Formula 3 back then was, apart from being incredibly exciting racing, it was bloody dangerous, wasn't it? I mean, you know, what do you remember about the, the, those, those races those days
1: I don't think they were dangerous. No. We didn't think so at the time, anyway. You never do, do you? I mean, you well, don't really yeah. think it's dangerous. I, t- I
3: talked to Chris Kraft about this a couple of years ago, and he, yeah. he, he said the 1966-67 Italian, yeah. Italian F3 Championship yeah. was dangerous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He, yeah. Said he said it was, it was terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you know, rewarding when I mean, he did well, but yeah.
2: Um, but... yeah, I mean, some of the tracks, I think, are the, you know, the Continental circuits. Oh, yeah, yeah yes, I think I it was more yeah. the fact that yeah. on the yeah. co- over yeah.
3: there, I mean, I don't think it was so much in the UK. The
1: British circuits were pretty good by the standards of that day. I mean, we'd invert, in, you know, we'd sort of managed to make more straw bales and stuff like that. It wasn't, and then Armco arrived. I mean, But, um, yeah, I mean, some of the places, like Chimay, Rouen. I mean, Rouen was unbelievable. I mean, fantastic place. I was there the day that uh, they had a massive shunt there. I think the three guys died there. Was um, the, the Jean-Luc Salomon. That's right, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah
0: Wonderful racing, I mean, it, <coughs> the reason I said dangerous actually is because it, it was such close racing, I mean, the slipstreaming and the, you know, to be in the lead pack, you had to be good, didn't you?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was all different, I mean, it was the same in Formula 2, anything at Hockenheim, I mean, when we used to go to Hockenheim, um, you used to spend more time in setup in making sure that your mirrors were right, because you had to be able to see without moving your head because Uh when there were 14 of you going down the straight you wanted to know that the guy you were going to zap out and slipstream had seen you and if you did that he knew he'd seen you so he could do it if you didn't then he wasn't sure so you just be able to move (laughs) your eyes so that you could get the mirrors right but it was was different but it was tremendous racing
0: Let's let's talk a bit about Peter Gethin uh, for two reasons one, you had huge success with with Geth and, and secondly um, he, he's never in my view really ever been given his fair share of um, plaudits and credit for, for what he achieved I, I, I don't know why would you agree with that?
1: Um, probably not um, he, he was good uh, when he ran, when we won the whatever it was the 5000 championship with the m10a we took that to the states and won a couple of races for that because we got so many points ahead in britain we decided we'd go and conquer the states as well which was a bit of a mistake we did win races but it was hard going um and uh, because he he was so closely linked for a long time to mclaren yeah i remember the first time he drove um, a can-am car it was a brand new car, and neither Denny or Bruce could be there in the morning and uh, put gas in it. And out he went, and he kept coming back in and said, "Gee, unbelievable, unbelievable! It's like low flying. Oh, it's unbelievable." Denny arrived, and we took the throttle stop out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he he was um, he was very very good.
0: He was also a great guy. I mean, you know, you, you didn't spend long with him without having a laugh, did you? He was, he was a, a great character, Gethin.
1: I had the pleasure of driving around the States with him with an old Ford estate car that we bought for, I think, 150 bucks in the rotten worst place in New York where all the <laughs> dodgy car dealers were. That's all we could afford. And we were driving around the States in this thing and we used to have a quart of oil in it every 100 miles. <laughs> And we were driving we were driving from Paramus, New Jersey, Fred Opert's workshop over to California. And we must have got stopped 15 times for speeding. And we'd pay our fine and carry on. And, you'd, you know, he'd, 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 you'd be in a traffic jam. And he'd lean over and take the keys out of the car and chuck them out the window. <laughs> and you had to get out and find them and fire it back up again. And I got stopped once and I was doing a fine job. The cop was saying to me... So, uh, where are you from? Oh, we're from England. Oh, yeah? Whereabouts in England? Oh, uh, uh, the middle. the my daughter's in Oxford. Oh, really? Is she in university? Uh, yeah, she is. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're from Oxford. Oh, right. What does she look like? Oh, she's small and dark. I think I know her. <laughs> <laughs> this used to go on. And, um, you know, you get halfway through the thing, and getting would lean across and say, Officer, don't listen to him. He's given that nonsense to everybody that stops us. And we've had 12 today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he was he was he was he was good fun to be with. Yeah. I mean there's there's lots of very good stories. Some of them I can tell, some of them I can't. Sure. <laughs> uh,
0: there was a little bit of little bit of Gerhard Berger in, in Geth, I think. He same humour and
2: Yeah, he he was it, well, same attitude to a lot of things, really. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> no, Geth was um was very special. He was he was special. He was very easily tipped, that was his problem. You know, you could walk up to Geth and uh I always remember when he'd left us and he was driving for other people and you could walk up to him and say, God, Geth, when you were with us, I knew you were brilliant, but watching that car through there, it's all over the place. It's understeering, oversteering. Only someone like you could drive it. And you knew who he was driving for, come down 10 minutes later and said, you've been talking to Gethin. (laughs) We're changing springs. (laughs) 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 And uh, he, he was, he was a very special, lovely man, beautiful man.
0: You you also ran Carlos Parche, didn't you? Yeah, and for uh, a few we've places. never had anybody on a podcast who's who, who's um, who's done that. I mean, was how, how was he a huge talent,
1: Mike? Massive, massive, absolutely massive. Again, a lovely bloke who um, um, was very humble, but knew what he wanted. He wasn't a pushover, but blindingly quick. I mean, I think, if uh, he'd been in the right place at the right time, I mean, I know that Bernie thought he was wonderful. And uh, he was, he was a great guy, huge talent. We didn't do that much with him because we were running the old um, Formula 2 Pygmies at the time. Yeah. And it was sponsored by a Brazilian bank, I think it was, <laughs> who um, either ran out of money or forgot to send it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> but yeah, Pache was very special.
0: You, you, Nigel, you watched him race, of course, didn't
2: you? Oh, well, I watched him race a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, I remember it was just before the race of champions. I think in '77 that he was he was killed in that in that, yeah. um, in that plane crash, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah that was the, that was in fact that was that was a terrible time because that was right after um, Tom Price had been killed. Yeah. So yeah, no, no he, he was a lovely bloke.
0: Actually, you mentioned Bache, Bernie, Bernie Ecclestone, Mike, and of course, some people, maybe understandably, actually, have kind of forgotten that, you know, he is, deep down at heart, a racer, a racing fan, and he, of course, had the Brabham team, and you've known him on and off all these years, um, this is a bit of a, a, a flyer for you, but, um... Thanks, Rob. <laughs> yeah, do you, looking at Formula One today, we'll come to it a bit later, but, um... Do you think Bernie, you know, it's kind of he's had his time? Uh, What's your gut feeling about about that now?
1: It's election time. I'll probably give you a politician's answer, but um, I'm not close enough to it now to make a decision. Um, All I know is that uh, I was there when he first came along, and I know what Formula One was then and what it is now. And without him, um, a lot of people wouldn't be where they are today um hey he's made mistakes don't we all um and i think uh, he on the basis of that he's been very good for yeah. all sorts of things i think a lot of what he does goes unnoticed i think in the age of um uh, the internet um it's very easy for people to make their criticisms without knowing the full facts yeah. and he takes his fair share of that um but He's a much, much more positive element to motorsport than negative by a long, long way. Mm. Interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I would agree with that. Um, really, my only... My beef is not is not with Bernie, it's with CVC. Yeah, well, I, As far as I'm concerned, you know, Bernie, as you say, has made it what it is. And he's got very rich along the way. Fair enough. You know, he did it. They don't do anything. They just take... Uh, but we can blame and, Bernie and, for bringing the, CVC in. Well, we can
3: blame Bernie for bringing CVC in. Well, of we course. certainly can.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We we'll certainly do that. Yeah. But but the but the thing that, that you know upsets me more than anything is the way the heritage of Formula One is being lost because but I mean, how many? I don't know. We're going to have six races in Europe this year.
3: Now, now, <laughs> not, now, not very now, many.
2: Now Germany's gone. So it's a lot of the time Formula One is taking place in countries that couldn't care less about it. And Bernie has always said, oh, well, it's on TV, it doesn't matter. It actually does matter. The fans feel that they, a lot of fans feel that it's being, Formula One is becoming distant from them because where the hell's, you know, wherever it is, Qatar, you know. I think w- what's that got to do with Formula One, you know.
0: We we could ask you, Mike, about, we're jumping ahead slightly here, and we'll go back again in a minute. But, I mean, you you had the Onyx Formula One team, and inside formula one is a very different place from anywhere outside formula one isn't it i mean you're not actually thinking about whether you're giving value for money to the fans or whether it's accessible or not you're you're completely focused on the racing
1: yeah you are but i think you do think about the fans um because you know without them there's no point being there um and there's no point anybody uh, putting money into Formula One as a sponsor partner or anything like that unless it appeals to the public. Yeah. I, what I do disagree with about Formula One now is I think some of the measures that have been taken to spice it up, so to speak, have been counterproductive. Yeah, I think um, it's wrong. Um, it's a part of... What was there when we were doing it, you know about ten sixty six it was um, you wanted a driver who could look after his tires and then smash his gearbox to bits and yep. you know today it doesn't it 's not quite the same there 's so many um, electronic safety nets for them, mm. and they know that they 've got you know at least two tire stops to make and all these sorts yep. of things yep. and i don 't think it helps the fans at all. Um, because it's very good if you're sitting opposite the pits, but they haven't got enough big uh, screens around the circuit to know who's gone in and who hasn't, and where they've rejoined, and so they've turned it into a television sport. Yeah.
2: Do you feel that it's, it, to me, one of the problems with it, and, and people do say this, is it's become so complicated. Yeah, it is. Rules spawn more rules, and, and, they, and they can't keep track of it. People are sort of, what are engine tokens, and, yeah. and w- so why has he got more engine tokens than no. Mercedes, or whatever? Uh, it's, 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 it's not a, it's, it just seems to me, year by year, it becomes ever more complicated. And Brundle actually was saying this the same thing, just in terms of the number of things they have to explain. Before they start,
3: I mean, I, I actually um, like some of the engineering complexity, some of it, but I think it's gone. It's it's become pointlessly complex in so mm. many ways now that it's just, you know, unless you are actually on the inside, it it, it, it can be baffling.
1: I've always thought that uh, if you look at it, it's it's really it's a reflection of modern life because everybody tries to please everybody, yeah. and. Um, it's the same with governments and everything, you know. Um, and you end up with a situation where you end up pleasing nobody. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that's what's happened to Formula One. They've tried so many remedies to fix something that fundamentally wasn't broken. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> and the other thing but the other thing about the complexity of the modern rule
3: book is that it's also very restrictive. And a lot of the stuff that we saw during the 70s and 80s, whether it's sliding skirts or Brabham fan cars or six-wheel Tyrrells. You know, nowadays, everything... Ten minutes after the regulations come out, the science of the wind tunnel dictates everything looks the same, and it's just... It doesn't have the same engineering fascination, for me, at least.
1: No, I mean, when you see people like Adrian Newey, who is effectively bored with it, because QED, the regulations yes. determine what he can do, and he's got a mind that is racing, you know, 20 years ahead of what's there now, it's so frustrating for him. Mm. It really is. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, so... Did, as you brought up the subject,
3: Rob of the uh, Onyx Formula One team, one question I have to ask: Jean-Pierre Van Rossum, Moneytron,
1: <laughs> d- <laughs> your sponsor, you beat me to d- it. <laughs> d- discuss. <laughs> well, funnily enough, w- when we did our launch um, at the Hippodrome in London, Nigel described it as the most tasteless thing he'd ever seen in his <laughs> life. <laughs>
3: Is that the car of the Lord? I'm, I know, I'm a, sorry, I've forgotten
1: that. On reflection, he was probably right. But at the time, I was sorely, sorely hurt by the fact that a journalist should be discussing taste. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now's your chance to get right back in him. Right? But, um, and also, we'd worked all night to get the car there. Yeah. And uh, we took it off the trailer and put it outside prior to bringing it through the side door. And when I went back out, there was some Jobsworth had clamped it. <laughs> 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 and I, d- I do have a piece of video, because we had a film crew there, of me arguing with this Jobsworth to get the clamp taken off so that we could take it in to put it on the lift. <laughs> um, it's a fabulous picture, and there's this Jobsworth stood there, and I'm poking him in the chest. <laughs> You've got to let it go, mate. He should have left it. We'd have probably been quicker. So, um, <laughs> so we... Um, would you like to tell us
0: it was a little a f- bit about the launch? Well, I mean, okay. No. I, I can't
2: remember a great deal about it. I mean, I in well, fact, in fact, you were. Well, in fact, I mean, Mike, Mike Mike has reminded me what I said at the time. But I mean, it's a this is a long time ago, and I, I yeah. can't I can't remember much clear detail. I do remember thinking, I must say, and I think a lot of people thought the same thing from the outset. Monitron. Yeah. That doesn't sound. Kosher just does not sound
1: well. Also, also we had on the side of the car an emblem which was Petit Lou, which was a, a baby clothing company, which um, was owned by his lady, and uh, it looked uncannily like a pound sign. It and did. Of course, <laughs> yeah, so, so people had money troll on it, and they thought, "Oh, how gross! It's got it's got this pound sign on the side." He was, funnily enough. A very, he was a clever guy. He was a professor of economics at Louvain University. That's how he started out. And he invented this computer program which, which was predictive so that if the President of the United States got shot, he predicted what would happen to the price of oil and the price of gold and all this. And he sold the system to banks for a lot of money. I mean, I think he was charging about $5 million a pop at the time. And he got it going quite well. And he had a lot of very heavy-hitting investors uh, involved in it and um that's how he, but he had a, a an absolute love of cars i mean mm. i could do this whole program with mm. van rossom stories but he he was absolutely unique um those of you who've obviously never seen the pictures he had hair down to over his shoulders well and it
2: also looked as though his hair probably could lubricate a car he, he oh, really yeah. seemed never to wash it, <laughs> it was right, I remember yeah, yeah.
1: but he i mean uh, some of the funny ones we We were at um, Rickard and we picked up our first points there. I think we had a fifth um, with Stefan. And um, at the time, Porsche were talking about coming back with what was effectively two of their V6 turbo engines put together with a central power take-off and a long, heavy lump it was. Anyway, they came and saw us and Bernie fetched them down and said, look, this is where you want to be and all this. So off we go of and meet them all and uh, Van Rossum says uh, oh, I will come to the meeting this is very important so yeah fine meet you then, no 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 I will fly over in the jet to Gatwick and pick you up good, so he arrives long hair onto his shoulders and a suit on because he always wears tracksuit bottoms and racing boots and uh, <laughs> so so he, he turned up and uh, we jumped on the plane and the young lady said um right um, would you like anything to eat and he said well, what have you got so she said uh, so unfortunately he decided on an egg mayonnaise baguette which when he bit into it put egg mayonnaise all down his suit all down his shirt <laughs> in his hair and he was pulling it out of his hair and eating it and so <laughs> we, we arrive at Porsche and uh, long story anyway in the, in the end the deal was agreed as we leave, absolute confidentiality, nobody must say anything until it's done, and da 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 da. Yeah, 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 we'll have a joint press release. Well, next morning, I got a phone call from Pierre Bonfleet who said, um, Oh, you've got Porsche. I said, Pardon? <laughs> 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 he said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, Well, no, I don't think about it. Well, he was on television last night <laughs> talking about it. So, of course, swiftly followed by a phone call from Porsche who <laughs> wanted nothing more to do with it so I rang him and said Porsche will withdraw because of your television uh, appearance he said uh, this was not me I said excuse me <laughs> 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 not he looked like him I f- subsequently got a phone call in the evening to say um, your man has um, made the news down here I said oh, is he, what's he done now I'm crying out loud he said um, he drove his Porsche down to the main square and set fire to it <laughs> showed him <laughs> <laughs> so yeah he was he was, yeah. he was very special i always remember always remember he <laughs> he said we went down there one day and there was jenks alan jenkins and i and uh, he sat there and he said um i want this to be a big team i want us to have our own test track i want just have our own wind tunnels and our own carbon factory and everything do the work, so I go out and I go up and see the Earl of March and agreed a bit of land we could lease to put a factory on. I thought oh, it was a nice little test circuit. Uh, got all the quotes in for all the bits he wanted, and that was it. But coming up to the <laughs> meeting we were having with him, I had a row because there was a payment late with him, so I was pretty annoyed with him. And we got on the plane to go out there, and I said to Jenks and Joe Chamberlain with me. I said, uh, "Listen." If he goes on any more about Fanta, because he used to drink gallons of Fanta, <laughs> cans and cans. Of it. He used to have a big, in his office, wooden caboc- cabinet, one of which was a fridge. It was full of Fanta. I said, if he hand- offers me a Fanta today, I'm going to tell him where to stick it. So we go in, and he sits down, well, how's it gone? I said, well, we've got the factory on this side, and we've got the wind tunnel, and we've got the thing. and Great. Do it all. Would anybody who like a fainter? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have two? Um, so. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was pretty special. Uh,
2: he did, Bernie, Bernie wasn't keen on him. I, 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 I mentioned him in, just in passing to Bernie four or five years ago, and Bernie just went, Wen, horrible bastard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I always remember we went to the Belgian Grand Prix, which obviously was the important one for him for Van Rossum and um, he'd gone to press with you know Belgium's biggest newspaper whatever that is and um, he would said what he wanted to say by denial so he said I want you to know now I never said Jean-Mier, Jean-Marie Belest was a Nazi I never said that I never ever said that Bernie Eccleston was the mafia ever <laughs> So I arrived not knowing this, and Herbie Blash has come out. He said, uh, Bernie wants to see you. So, oh, fine, what's this? (laughs) So I thought the truck was too long or the canopy was dirty or whatever. (laughs) Anyway, Bernie told me the story. He said, get him up here. So I said, right, okay, fine. So, anyway, I just said, Bernie wants to see you. Oh, good, good. So he walked up, and (laughs) Ben Rossum stood in front of him, and Bernie looked at him and said, uh, Listen, you. I've seen them come. I've seen them go, and I'm not frightened of the dark. Go away, (laughs) or to that effect? (laughs) He used to have about eight very beautiful models at every race, and he had them equipped with clothing from whoever the best designer was at the time, all in the team's colours. Um, I think we were in Detroit, and Bernie came down the pit road, and he said. Get all those birds out of this place. They're doing my head in so we had dispatch them. <laughs>
0: oh,
2: boy. What happened am- to him, Mike?
1: What happened to Van Rossen? Well, he eventually... Um, they found out that he'd been embezzling money. You know, there's a surprise. Looked like a straight guy to me. So... <laughs> <laughs> so... So, he... Um, They tried to indict him and put him away, but apparently, if you're an MP in Belgium at that time, you couldn't be charged with a civil matter. So, he stood for Parliament, and strangely, he offered everybody free houses, free cars, free everything, and he got elected. It was absolutely amazing. (laughs) So, he did two years of that, and the story goes that, when the King of Belgium was opening Parliament, he jumped up and shouted "Vive la République," and they arrested him. he went to he went to prison for three years. I don't know where he is now.
0: Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, only Formula One could come <laughs> out of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we might we can't let the uh, we can't let this pass, Mike, without. Staying in Belgium for a couple of minutes because it was in Belgium that David Perley had that absolutely fantastic Grand Prix where, where um, I think it's fair to say he found himself in the lead. Um, and it'd be really nice to hear, you know, from you straight from the horse's mouth, as it were, how all that came about because um, he really shouldn't have been leading the race, should he? I mean, and there were only about three of you in the pits, weren't there?
1: I think that basically you, you're doubting the sort of brilliance of the technical decisions I made. Okay, well, uh, hands up. <laughs> it started wet, and we went out on wet just like everybody else. And uh, after about 10 laps, it dried out. And uh, there were three of us in the whole team, and we figured that it looked a bit cloudy, it might rain again. And we figured that it would take us about three and a half weeks to change the tyres. So <laughs> we just kept going, and everybody came in, and we were leading. And um, a bit of an altercation afterwards with Nicky because he held Nicky up for quite a long time. And, um, but that was David. He just said to me afterwards, he said, uh, who's the guy in the red car with the red helmet? I said, was Nicky Lauder in a Ferrari? Oh, all oh right. I think he might be a, a So right, Fine, okay, so we go. Uh, anyway, Nicky came up to interview him with about 500 journalists and there was a bit of finger pointing which Pearlie responded to fairly robustly and uh, <laughs> but they became very very good friends afterwards very good Did friends they? yeah no, very didn't, good didn't friends didn't we, didn't we had to put a rabbit on the side of the well cart. I was going to say I remember that yeah, yeah Nicky yeah, yeah. said that uh, we were um, they shouldn't allow rabbits in races and uh, Perley sort of called him the rat and that's where it kind of stuck um, so that's where it all came from but uh, uh, I know when David had his accident at Silverstone, Nicky was on it every day, is he alright, is there anything we can do, really? and, you know, he, yeah he was great, really good, fantastic. I
3: um, don't want to go over the grisly bits, but I mean just going back, I mean what was that like, I mean looking back, the I mean Silverstone 77, I mean a tiny team, all built around one guy, he was the hub of the team, you're all friends, I mean how did you all cope with that?
1: Uh, at the time, I mean all the friendship bit and small team goes out the wall, um, Brian Hinton came in and he stopped at our pit and he said he's had a big one It is a bad one out the back. So <coughs> we uh, dashed off and got our support vehicle which was a Mark 1 Cortina, um, a state wagon. <laughs> Oh, well, was proper one. Big <laughs> budget. And uh, we threw a few tools in the back and drove out there. And it uh, the, was surrounded by escape um, rescue vehicles. And uh, as we roamed around the corner, Greg Field, who was working with me at the time, he collapsed. He just fell on the floor. I mean, the car was just... T- the two roll hoops, the front and the rear, were so close together. His head was sideways in them. And uh, when we got there, I was amazed he was still alive. Mm and i mean if there's i mean we all know he recovered and went back but it was terrifying at the time we thought we'd lost him Mm. and um he i'll always remember the doctor (coughs) working on him said i'm losing him. i'm losing him you're going to have to keep him interested talk to him so i said what have you done and he said brakes didn't work i said that's nonsense i can see skid marks right up the road You've wrecked our weekend. <laughs> and we were having this huge argument. And I've always thought to this day, people who didn't know what were going on, yeah. thinking, what a heartless piece of work that bloke is. But it kept him going. You were keeping
3: him alive. Yeah, yeah. While, we,
1: while we got him in the ambulance. And um, he, in the ambulance, he said to me, uh, can you get the car ready for tomorrow? And I said, well, if you can get ready, I'll be ready. Don't <laughs> worry about it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty horrific.
2: I, uh, did, I ha- did happen to see that accident. Yeah. Believe it or not believe it or not. And It was, it was one of those that you just literally assumed instantly. Yeah. That's not survivable. So, and I'll never know it, to this day how, you know, how he
1: did. His old man Charlie, who you know, he was a fishmonger who made good by making fridges. He made a fridge. He used to pick up fridges, um, fish from Bognor railway station, take it on a trades bike. Then he had such a big ground he needed a refrigerator, so he built one and he sold one to the local butcher. And that's how electric that refrigeration started. And he, I rang him, he was playing golf, I said, uh, Charlie, David's had a massive shunt. He said, oh, has he? Oh, right, um, well, I'm on the 11th. <coughs> he said, you're a good man, you'll take care of everything. Oh, and by the way, here's my telephone credit card number. Use that. Don't keep putting money in the things. no mobiles in those days. So, um, <laughs> I kept ringing him. After about a week, I said, are you coming up to see him? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll bring his mother up. So, <laughs> fine, okay, well, per- <laughs> Pearlie's laying in bed, and he's got a tube in his throat, and his head is the size of a big melon, but black. And... Uh, as we we're walking into the, this room, I've said to Charlie, look, Charlie, it's not a pretty sight, so be prepared for a shock. When he turned around and said, she's right, there you are, Joyce. Don't be doing anything silly. So, right, we walked in. As we opened the door, Charlie collapsed on the floor. <laughs> 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 Mrs. Pearlie was great. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, it was, a, it was a bad, bad day. The, the best... Uh, the
0: best thing is that we can laugh about it today, isn't it? Because the guy was... I mean, you know, a lot of men wouldn't have survived that. He was tough as hell, and he was fit. He was very, very fit, David Purley wasn't he?
1: Oh, he was. He used to run eight, nine miles every day, yeah, and he used to have his Irish wolf help, which used to go with him. I, I, you know, he used to say, come on, wolf, we'll go running. And I think wolf used to try to get back in his basket. He didn't <laughs> want anything to do with it. But... but he um yeah, he I mean he was remarkably fit and remarkably determined. I mean not what you did with him, whether you were, you know, playing yeah. tiddlywinks, yeah. he had to win. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. Was, he was he very he was a unique character. He had no understanding of um, he didn't really want to understand the incident. He'd have been hopeless in Formula One today because he yeah. couldn't understand what it was about. I mean, um, he and James together were a, a win-double. I mean, you know, we all got on the bumper cars at Zandvoort and got chased out of the fair by the fair <laughs> <grand> people <laughs> trying to turn them over.
0: <laughs> they were quite similar characters, actually, weren't they, in some ways? The, the other you? thing
2: about him was that he, he uh, I remember doing an interview with him in the sort of mid-70s, mid not very long before the accident, actually, and he's about the only racing driver I can ever remember speaking to apart from Sterling who actually believed it should be dangerous yeah yeah, he he truly did I mean he was he was he was even then he was very concerned about the sort of milk and water circuits that were being used and (sighs) places like Shimei you know were falling into
1: no he did he was he was, he was that way. He thought that, you know, it, it was something that he was doing, but he, he wanted that. I mean, you know, he'd been in the paras and he jumped out and his parachute failed to open. And he rode down on the top of another parachute when he broke his, the other bloke's shoulder and his leg. But he was always looking for a thrill. He loved things that were right mm. on the edge. But hence, he went up, you know, and took up aerobatic flying. But uh, he was a quite remarkable character. I mean, he really was. He was. I got to know James from when we were doing the Philip Morris driver promotion thing, the world championship team. And you're right, there were a lot of similarities. Actually,
0: which brings us on, and we are jumping about here, but we have to because it's five decades. But, But talking about James and Marlborough brings us to Stefano Modena um, you can't really imagine a more different person to David perley than Stefano Modena, really. But um, he, apart from bringing you, the te- you and the team huge success and, and you bringing him his success, I mean, he won the Formula 3000 championship. And everybody said at the time, Mike, you know, this guy is something special. This guy is going to be world champion. This guy's going to take Formula One to pieces. And why didn't he? What, what, what happened there? Um,
1: two reasons, really. After we won the Formula 3000 Championship, uh, which was 87, during 88 we decided we were going to build a Formula 1 car. And we had started on it. And at that time, I was talking to Philip Morris and they were looking to have what really amounted to what today is called a junior team. Mm. And it was going to run in gold and white for Marlboro Lights as opposed to red and white. And we were quite well advanced with the car, and obviously we were going to take Modena and one of the other guys out of this um, young drivers scheme, which, to coin a well-used phrase, was a victim of its own success because we produced so many good drivers. I mean, in 87, every championship we had a driver in, we won the championship. And mm-hmm. um, Modena was amongst them. And um, we were going to do that. Well, uh, halfway through it, uh, America decided they didn't want to do it we had a car half finished, so we had to stop that and um, aim for 89 which left Modena at a bit of a loose end and he ended up doing Eurobron and all sorts of things yeah. it was the only place to go his other bit of bad luck was that at the end of 87 Bernie rang up and said this guy Modena is he any good and I said yeah I think he is I think he's exceptional which he was um, I know Senna rated him very highly. I talked to Senna at Spa about him, and he said, yeah, because he, he, they raced against one another a lot in carts. Mm. And Modern had a good record against him, and said, yeah, this guy will be special. And um, <coughs> so our chance with him were gone in 88, and we were then flapping around to try and get the car built. And Stefano had to go off and do what he had to do. A bit of bad luck was the end of 87, Bernie had called up and said, is he any good? And I said, yeah, I think he is. I think he's exceptional. Uh, and he said, right, get him down to Australia. I'll run him there. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he went down there. He never fitted in the car. He was in big trouble with that. Uh, he wasn't particularly big, but he couldn't get comfortable in the car. I think he qualified reasonably well. I think he was about 11th or something. Mm. But in morning warm-up, he had more time in the car. I think he was in the top four or five. But I think after halfway through the race, his feet went to sleep mm. and he, he retired. Uh, had Bernie not decided at that point to sell Brabham's, mm. he would have been at Brabham's the next year. Yeah. Right place at the right time again or wrong place at... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And we've all seen hundreds of drivers. Yeah, like yeah. That. You know, he's not the only one that's suffered that Absolutely. way. <coughs> I was going to
3: ask actually, Mike, because I mean, you, you... You know, I first met you in sort of 83, 84 when you were running... the 1883, was it? eighteen I mean, yeah. eighty yeah. yeah. <coughs> and, you know, you had loads and loads of good young drivers... passed through the system. I mean, who, apart from Stefano, who are the others that you felt could, should have made it, but
1: didn't ultimately? Well, one that very definitely did make it was, James and I, the way this scheme used to work, all the territories from Marlborough, because what happened was, in the beginning, you'd have 18 Italian drivers sponsored by Marlborough and 23 Frenchmen, but nobody from anywhere else, because there was any budget. So... I convinced them that they should take a percentage of everybody's budget, put it in a pool, and then we'd have a, a thing at the beginning of the year, so guys who'd done Formula 4, would run in with Dick Bennett's in Formula 3, at a test day, and we'd make a decision. There'd be about five of each of them, and they'd all get a set number of laps and tyres to make the decision. <coughs> so, the scheme was quite well set up. They bought into it, and it was quite well set up. And through that, became one that was very successful was Mika. Um, and the story that I don't think has been told, which is true, James and I were sitting in the office in Chiswick, we had a day of going through these long forms that uh, territories had to send in, ticking off numbers out of ten why this should be the guy that should be supported. And um, we'd finished, it was seven o'clock and James said, come on mate, time to go and have a pint. So fine, we got up to go out and as we were walking out through the Secretary's office, there was another one of these forms on the desk. And I said, what's that one? He said, I don't know. Come on, let's go and me. them have a look. Yeah, we ought to give him a test. That was Micah Hackenham. That's how close <laughs> it came to not helping. But Micah came along, McNish, Pirro, Dalmas. They all came through the scheme. Um, and it worked very well. Um, but I mean,
3: who, who are the other guys, I mean, from that, like, who are the ones that you really rated, you felt? I mean, obviously, Modena... Could have made it with the yeah you know, had the wind been blowing in a different well, direction.
1: Obviously, Hacken and Mcnish, mm. Mcnish was underrated. Again, wrong place, wrong time. Um, you know, we took him. We had a few races with him in three thousand ninety two. Yeah, when he was test driver at McLaren, and uh, I'd known Alan for a long time uh, and his father, and I think as has turned out, he's he's a very bright, clever guy mm. and a good driver. Uh, Tremendous team player. Yeah. Um, Pirro, obviously, um, definitely. Right, well, I had Pirro for three years in Formula yeah. 2 and Formula 3000. Um, never, I, mean, I love him dearly, but uh, he was never top 10 material, but a good driver. I mean, you know, we're talking fractions here. Yeah. You, you know, anybody, it doesn't matter who they are, if they get into Formula One through ability, they're a good driver, and the difference between being a good driver and uh, an exceptional driver—I mean, you can see it. The good ones are always ten meters ahead of the car, and the bad ones are 30 ten meters behind. behind it, it's sorting yeah. out what's already happened.
0: And then there's Beppe Gabbiani. Yeah, we should really should we give Beppe a mention? Do you think? I think oh, well,
1: we I was going
3: to a few, words, but I'm, I'm glad you brought the subject up because I mean, uh, before we started recording, I, I do remember Enna 1984. Um, Thierry Tassan was your regular driver he was off doing the spa 24 hours and Bepi stood in yeah. and I'm pretty sure that he, he busted a drive shaft doing a practice start from the end of the pit lane in the race car the mechanics stuck him in the spare where he probably went to the end of the pit lane did a practice start and bust another driveshaft I'm fairly sure that
1: happened I don't know I don't, think that, I don't think that was because uh, he did a whole season with us
3: in 83, in he was with you. Yeah, that's it. right, yes. But in 84, he you know, was. He, 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 he suffered he he teary. T- I do remember that happening. Yeah. Yeah. He, is a,
0: um, he is a journalist. <laughs> <yeah. you> know, <laughs> I, mean, but, uh, I wouldn't make
3: anything up. No, I'm um, going no. But yeah, he just I'd did one noticed. race with, with, for you in 84, so when, when Tassan wasn't there. Yeah. And I just remember he didn't actually do the race because he was too busy breaking drive shafts.
1: Well, he probably, you're probably right. I mean, I can't remember that. But he was, he was special, again, in a, in a very, very different way. um He's totally, totally laid back, and <laughs> it, it was just about the time that the headsets had come in, and we were running, um, what's his name, um, Scott, um, young English guy, Beppe Gabbiani and Tasson, and I went round, went round one day, it was just before the start, and I said, uh, what do you listen to, Scotty? Well, Land of Hope and Glory, <laughs> right, fine. And I said, oh, right, what about, what about you, uh, Terry, what do you got on? Oh the carpenters—they're very good. (laughs) All right, okay, good, good. Beppy, what do you got? (laughs) Black Sabbath. (laughs) (laughs) You would—you'd be on the grid with him, and you know they'd done the warm-up lap, and you'd be sitting there, and he'd be going, "The lady in the third row, she's showing her knickers."
0: He um. was, was very special. I'll
1: always remember he'd had the year before with Maurer and it had been yeah. pretty unsuccessful. And when he won the first race, the uh, first race of the season, um, <laughs> as he crossed the line at Silverstone, he veered towards the pit wall and I thought, well, it was a celebration, but it wasn't. He was giving rude signs to Willie Maurer <laughs> as he went by <laughs> But he was he was talented. Uh, Peter Gethin, who was engineering him at the time, actually went on to handle his management for a while. Mm. But he was um, he was definitely uh, very very. He was an interesting guy. Uh,
0: we haven't we haven't. Um, inf- oddly, we have answered a lot of our readers' questions, um, <laughs> just without actually asking them. without actually <laughs> asking asking them. So, um, uh, but we, I'd like to take one from Andy Gearing. Um, Just to change the pace a little bit, Mike. Um, He's asking, given the current restrictions, do you think it's even remotely viable to enter a new team into Formula One these days and enjoy any kind of success?
1: Um, The only way you can do it is if you're somebody like Haas, who has the money. I mean, the raw material of motor racing has always been, but even more so than now, is money. You know, it, it would... Know you know when RD took over McLaren. Um, if he hadn't been so good at finding sponsors and making giving them what they wanted, McLaren's wouldn't be what it is today. Mm-hmm. It was because he had the money to spend to do it. Ferrari have always been in that situation. If somebody came in, and you know, let's not mess about, lots of big companies have come in, Toyota spent a fortune mm. and not made it so mm. it's not just a case of the money you got to and it takes time to yeah. put the ingredients together i mean red bull fantastic they didn't come in and blitz the world they had lots of money yeah, yeah. you've got to put all the bit all the infrastructure in place and that goes from everything from not just designers but you know people who look after the factory and it's and that takes time that's three or four year project and someone's got to be prepared to put up that level of investment for three or four years yeah. I think for people to come in <coughs> and um, try and do it on a, a shoestring budget, particularly as you know, you're not getting any money from um, uh, the organisers uh, for a couple of years, <laughs> if you're lucky, um, it's very, very difficult. And I, I, in answer to the question, without money, definitely not. With money, it's still very difficult. I was going to say, I mean,
3: I mean, Red Bull, yes, they did have money, But they made a success of something that the Ford Motor Company, who also have money,
1: failed. Mm. The reason they did it was they had people involved who could identify the ingredients to the cake. If you come into it totally cold and you don't have people who know the right ingredients, it's going to take you longer. And I think in Toyota's case, um, they went at it and they went outside of Formula One, effectively initially to get what they want the most important year uh, for somebody trying to do it is the first year that's when you put down the foundations on which the whole project is built and if you get that wrong so if you were doing it you'd probably spend two or three years drawing the plan of how you're going to do it trying to recruit the people you wanted before you actually did it it's no good getting in there and then saying jesus this is harder than i thought it was throw more money at it
0: um, Mike, another question for matt who says um he, he quotes derek bell actually as uh, as as being a supporter of the view that there are just too many open wheeler single seater series, and there aren 't enough seats further down the line for all the guys even even some of the quick ones. Do you think? Do you think that's true? Do you think that it's too much skewed? To, everything is too much skewed to, towards getting to Formula One because a lot of really good guys now are making a good living in the World Endurance Championship.
1: Yeah, but I think you see um, that's been a hobby horse of mine for a long time since there have been this plethora of um, single-seater formulas because there is a finite amount of money that's available for motor racing. If it's trying to spread that over 20 different championships, nobody's getting much money, so nobody can do a proper job, and the whole thing is self-defeating. I think that um, there should be a limit on how many national single seater championships there are, and yeah. definitely international yeah. championships. And, of course, we've got
3: the new FIA Formula 2 championship coming up, which we really need to go with GP2 and Renault 3.5 and GP3. Yeah, you and can't uh, have enough formulas. <laughs> <laughs> and and with a, with a diminishing number of Formula One cars to uh, yeah. Formula One teams to aim at. Yeah, so,
1: really. Okay. I mean,
0: it's one more question from a, from one of our um, uh, loyal motorsport readers, um, and this one comes from Daniel Smith. And Daniel, uh, Mike wants to know. Uh, this is about Stefan Johansson. We we all like Stefan, don't we? Um, how good was Stefan's third place drive at Estoril in 1989? obviously Daniel remembers this in particular, but can you cast?
2: That was when your he was mind? on the just about on the rims, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, that again is um, it was a good drive. He, I mean, in real terms, uh, without a couple of things, he'd have probably finished seventh or eighth. Um, we had the Mansell, was it Mansell Centre, taking one another out. Um, which moved us up. And then the other one was that uh, Prost came in very early for a tyre change. And while we were having a discussion about what we thought we should do, he'd done two laps. But we noticed the second lap was as slow as the lap that he'd done just before he put the tyres on. The first lap was quick. second one was back where he was. And we said, let's leave it. and Take a chance on it. And he just kept going. So he didn't stop. And... Um, He ended up being third, but it was a good drive, a very good drive. Um, He was really, really hacked off because it was the first time for a long time he'd been on the podium, and he ran out of fuel on the slowing down laps. (laughs) 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 So he didn't get. I mean, we were on a tight budget; fuel was expensive. Um, But uh, yeah, I presume by
3: then you did did have enough people to change the tires by then. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got we
1: got away from spoons and had proper levers. But no, it was. it was. Um, it was just literally. Look, he's gone there, and funnily enough, Stefan did. His, I think it was the. F- I mean, people can check the records, but it was in the top half dozen fastest laps in the race. Two laps from the end, hmm. on the tyres that were knackered. Two years old. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It, mu- it must be. It must be incredibly satisfying for somebody like you, because people, people always talk about the drivers. Understandably, I mean, it's the fans. You know, love the drivers, but. If you, if you manage a race like that, and obviously the fuel was pretty carefully managed as you ran out one, half a lap after the finish, it must be incredibly satisfying that to get to the end and think, you know, we got everything right.
1: Um, I think you can only say that when you win. Right. Um, third place was fantastic for us as a small team. You've got to remember in those days, I mean, Nigel will remember, but I think at some races you had 42 cars turn up. We were, you know, we were.
2: You're right. I mean, it's almost beyond belief now, isn't it?
1: Yeah. We had 42 cars. 12 of us used to go and try and pre-qualify in the morning between 7:30 and 8, and if you didn't get through as one of the top four, you packed your van and went home. Um, well, in fact, that's what what David was doing when he when he when he had his accident, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, exactly. yeah. So, and that's the way it was. Um, so it was incredibly difficult to get into the race, but if you got through, you generally found you qualified somewhere between twelfth and sixteenth because mm. you were quicker than the people that were in there. But right, mm. um, so yeah. I mean, with Stefan, I mean that's one of the the better stories as well. We uh, we're doing the Canadian Grand Prix, and. Uh, a lot of my stories revolve around pit stops and our inability to manage them. But anyway, um, Stefan came in for tyres and a uh, guy on the paddle on the front waved him out. <laughs> and the guy with the gun hadn't finished. So he let go of the gun as the car went. The weight of the gun took it under the wing, which ripped the gun off. Um, but unfortunately, he took half the gantry with him. Oh, yes. And Stefan, <laughs> to this day, says, he pulled out, went down the pit road, and he knew that behind him, because his place there was was Prost, and uh, I think it was Berger, and he said, I did a whole lap thinking, I'm going pretty g- well. Neither of those guys are overtaking me. And on the back, he's got this... <laughs> <laughs> And she's swinging from side to side, so we got over that one. We got him in, took all that off, and sent him out. And we had an umbrella, no pit, uh, part, no pit perches in those days. We had an umbrella. Unfortunately, the wind got under and it, hovered over the circuit for about five minutes. Unfortunately, it blew back to where I could. Remember. From that day, Bernie banned un- umbrellas. Yeah, we oh, were boy. quite serious, you know. Uh, <laughs>
0: Great. Um, let's come uh, a little bit nearer the present time. Um, you've been touring car racing, of course, um, with uh, Ford. And that was a, that, that was actually a really, really interesting project because that was a, a gas-powered engine. Yeah, Cala gas, in fact, if we want to uh, give the sponsor a bit of a mission. Yeah, so how did, tell, me, tell us how you
1: got into all that. Well, basically... Um, Tom Onslow Coal his father had a business that was converting petrol cars to gas cars
0: right.
1: uh, he knew someone at Calla, and I discussed with them with his father the opportunity of them sponsoring us and they said only if you can run Calla gas and we <laughs> said yeah ok fine no problem so he looked into it and <coughs> so I discussed it with Alan Gow and previous gas cars had been pretty inefficient and pretty useless so I had a look at it <clears throat> and in the past everybody um, injected it as a gas and we decided we'd inject it as a liquid right. uh, so we had some special tanks made in Australia and Cala um, made the gas for us and it took us a little while to get it to work but once it worked it was unbelievable um, I can say now because it's all over and well, they've been banned but um, huh when we first ran the engine <coughs> dave mountain at Mount Tune rang me up and he said because i thinking to myself oh, what sort of a chance have you taken here so david rang me and said uh, i think we've got a problem well i said oh right okay what is it he said well we just run one of these things on the dyno for the first time and we've not optimized it or changed anything yet bearing in mind that a good um, Engine in those days was producing 320 horsepower. He said, uh, "We've just seen 370." Yeah. Well, I said, "Ah, <laughs> right, okay. Well, get on and optimise <laughs> it." So, <laughs> so he did, and uh, at one stage we did actually have to pull them back. But at one stage we had over 400 horsepower of the thing. Cool. And what was happening was because the gas was going in absolutely freezing cold. It was expanding, I've forgotten how many times, but it was enormous. Mm. And the detonation was pretty expi- pretty exciting. And the thing was just, it was, I mean, they could spin wheels up to sixth gear. I mean, it was it was so powerful, but it was a very, very interesting project. Um, so uh, I think if we carried on another year, um, it would have uh, been even better, but they, they canceled the idea of it and then it was stopped. You couldn't have done it with anything more serious than touring cars because refueling, it, you had to take the whole tank out, put another tank in. So mm. for one start race, it was okay.
0: Well, they well, they changed cars in Formula E for heaven's sake.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Y- yeah, yeah. that that was that was a fantastic fantastic. Well, I was going to call it experiment. I guess it was an experiment in a way to begin with, wasn't it? But it was very successful and good for Ford. I mean.
1: It had been done before. It wasn't really. I mean, Ford didn't. I mean, to be honest, Ford never really had a great enthusiasm for right. touring cars uh, in Britain. Uh, but uh, it wasn't great for them because they didn't have a gas-powered car, yeah,
0: yeah, so sure. it had
1: to be an aftermarket a- addition to it. Sure, and they were working very hard on uh, hybrids at the time, so it really didn't make too much sense to them.
3: Right, and having. Forged the path you had forged through Formula 5000, Formula 2, Formula Atlantic, up to Formula 1, etc. I mean, how did you find the touring car arena? Did you you get the same buzz from racing there?
1: No. The only thing that I got the same buzz from uh, to doing uh, single-seater racing... Sports cars, maybe? Sports cars, Yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't want to do it when I was... Looking at it, you know, like all single-seated people, you know, when we were doing Formula 3000 or Formula 2 or Formula 1, I used to think it was for the old, you know, it was motor Racing's answer to help the aged. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) that's how I used to view it. And um, we we got involved with um, Stefan, with an American group, who wanted to buy an Audi and run it. And we managed to get some money from Golf. And from that moment onwards, I was hooked on it. Mm. It's great. It is fantastic. And if you look at it now, outside of um, Formula One, it's the only place where the drivers and teams are actually getting proper money.
0: Yeah. And it's very exciting at the moment.
1: I think it is. I mean, you know, before I'd done it, I thought, well, it was, you know, literally in the old saying, going about as slowly as possible to win. But it's not. They're flat on it from start to finish. And the cars now are very complex. There's more technical freedom, which is Yes, which there is, is more technical freedom. I think they have a danger. Um, and that is the danger that uh, they're now getting more and more manufacturers in who will drive the price up. So already, I mean, you know, when we were running the Zytec, it was possible to have a look at an LMP1 program. That way round, but now those guys have driven it far beyond there. So you know, there's definitely two leagues developing. I would like to see um, the people that build the cars, the Audis and you know, Nissan's Toyotas, whoever doing it. to be obligated to sell at least two cars outside of their own works to them.
3: And, and, and it's a fixed ceiling price as well, yes. so they can just spend as much on it developing it as they want. Exactly. They can only sell it for, yeah. for X. Oh, which Bush
1: yeah. traditionally did for
2: countless years, didn't they?
1: Exactly, and it worked. It worked for them, you know, because th- they don't give them away. Um, there are people out there. I mean, a little while ago, about four years ago, we had someone <coughs> approach us who, on the face of it, had unlimited money. Um, never saw it but (laughs) I I think they did have to be fair but their one request was that we had to be able to do it with the current Audi and Audi didn't want to sell a car Mm. and it didn't matter what you'd offered them they didn't want to sell it Hmm. which is you know it's fine that's that's their decision and I can understand why because even when we ran the cars the two years we ran with them we had to have five people from Audi to help us run the car mainly for (laughs) the engine and the gearbox, but uh, now that would be about 18 people from Audi to run the cars, yes, yes. so that makes it a lot more difficult for them. They just don't have that amount of people We've only got
0: ten minutes left um, and we've barely touched the surface actually but anyway we've done our best um Mike if you were to go back to one period in this five decades, which would it be if you could just have one more go at one more thing? Which one would you choose?
1: Probably doing track talk down at Radio Victory <laughs> with you, Rob. <laughs> getting,
3: getting drunk in the
1: dog and duck before we started. Um,
0: it was actually called the Museum Gardens. Oh, was it? All really oh, right. Mean, <laughs> Jack <laughs> and Daisy. All oh, yes, right, okay. yes, yes. Um,
1: I think it would probably be Formula one because a guy I admire a lot because of the way he operated... I have, if I had a fault when we were doing Formula One, whatever money we got in, we spent because we wanted to be at the pointy end as quickly as possible. Mm. And to be fair, you, you, you look at 89, brand new team, we had a third and a fifth. Yeah. You look at people now coming yeah. in with a lot less cars. Yeah.
0: they die for and it. Then,
1: yeah, it. they'd die for it. So I gave up a little bit too easy when it all got a little bit political at the end of 89. Um, and Eddie Jordan wouldn't, Eddie stuck in there and it was tough Freddie, I mean I've always said to people I remember when Keith Wiggins started with Pacific, he rang me up and he said look you've done it, tell me about Formula One and I said hey, the first year is relatively easy, they pat you on the head and say well done, you found your way to the circuit the second year is a that's a bitch, that's tough, the second year and it always is, second year is always more difficult and um, Eddie Stuck it out. Mm. And he had his problems. And we know he had his problems. And, um, you know, I think, you know, Bernie helped him at the time, which was good. Mm. And um, Eddie stuck at it. And he got where I like to think we could have got to mm. with Onyx. So I'd like to revisit that in in the light of what I know now but didn't know then. Mm. Um, we were always a little bit self-effacing, I suppose. We felt that we shouldn't be there. We almost felt as though we were interlopers. I always remember... I can't remember quite well. it might have been Spain, and Bernie came down because there were a few extra garages there. All of the you know, 14 cars that were trying to pre-qualify were out in the fields and you know, in the car parks and everything. And Bernie <laughs> came down and he said, look, I've given you a garage. Um, wow. If you don't pre-qualify, I'm going to come down here and you're in big trouble. But we, we managed to stay in there for the weekend, but we always felt as though we shouldn't really be there. And if, I, if we'd have done a proper second year, I think we'd have felt yes, we should be there, and Eddie would have been coming in, and he'd have been the one yeah. in that position. Yeah. Eddie got it right; I got it wrong.
0: It's interesting because I, th- I think I'm pretty sure I'm right that you've that you won a championship. You've won a championship in every decade of your career, haven't you?
1: No, oh. oh. i like am wrong. I've won a race in every decade. Oh really? Sorry, yeah. I thought you'd. Okay, okay. Uh, I've won a, I've won a race in every decade. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. amount to much, but it yeah. was it's. it's Hey, listen, when I joined, I didn't think I'd still be doing it. You know, I thought, sure. you can talk, people can talk about the finance of the, and the politics and all that sort of stuff, but the thing that r- still excites me is the racing. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, if
1: you can stand on the, you can stand in the garage, we say stand on the pit bull, you can't do that anymore, but you, you stand in the garage and you see, you know, 20 Formula 1 cars. Waiting to go the start, and you don't get an adrenaline rush out of it, you did. Yes. It's too late for you. I mean, it's I, I still love the racing, yeah. Hence the fact that I'll, you know, I'll watch I don't know, almost anything on television that's racing, yeah. On <coughs> you say on television, if you had to buy a
3: ticket to something nowadays, what
1: would it be? MotoGP, Formula One, Historics at Goodwood, what would it be?
0: He doesn't have to get, i get him a ticket. Oh, are well,
1: you me. getting me tickets for Goodwood? Yeah, <laughs> you know, they're, they're very cheap, Rob. Thank you. some of them are <laughs> half price. Um, <laughs> there um, I'd probably motor gp mm. um, if it had to be um, a sports car it would be a 6 hour sports car Like silverstone this weekend yeah. I'd have bought a ticket for because I be think a good race I think that's a perfect that is a perfect scenario for sports cars mm. I mean Le Mans is fantastic and I'd love to go back and do it and do it and do it but as regards keeping the excitement going it's more difficult a six-hour race at Silverstone or anywhere is fantastic mm. yes you know Definitely. when we were one um, Nürburgring with the Zytec against the Audi's I think the Daily Telegraph described it as one of the best sports car I mean, we took the lead with two laps to go we, we overtook McNeish with two laps to go <laughs> with the Zytec and it was so it was so so exciting it really wasn't you could see it coming we were going and going and going thinking well, did we get that last, last tyre change right and not put any fuel in and it was coming and coming and two laps in the end we did it to be fair McNish said he almost pulled over because he knew there was nothing he could do about it but it was you know that was fantastic yeah I mean,
0: a close finish at the end of six hours is just thrilling isn't it it's just yeah. it's gripping gripping stuff yeah, yeah. Um, okay Uh. Mike what's happening right now because you're, you're I don't <laughs> it's. Like There's a helicopter waking <laughs> off. That's what's <laughs> happening yes, right now. It's, <laughs> it's helicopter racing is yes. going on. Um, you're you're building cars at the moment.
1: Yeah, we've um, been involved for a little while with this TCR formula, which is touring cars again.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, but built to a price cap. Um, we had a look at it with Marcello Lotti and a lot of two other people, and said just like all motor racing, touring car. It's got very, very expensive. I mean, you look at the British Touring Car Championship now, it's a lovely championship, well run, exciting, good TV, but it's very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. So we had a look around and said, okay, well, most of the manufacturers are producing um, an energy performance vehicle, Civic Rs and GTIs and all sorts of things. Let's take those a little bit further. Not, you know, reinvent the wheel, but take them a little bit further and put a price cap on them, which was put on at 100,000 euros. Um, and that's the whole idea. I mean, there's an international series which has started, which was, it was probably started too early, but if we told people it was going to start in 2016, they'd be been ready in 2017. Oh. So um, it's going forward. There are a lot of manufacturers coming in. There are 11, maybe 12 national championships um, being signed uh, for next year. Uh, so that people doing it be able to move on to the international championship using the same product, it's just a way to give people a chance to get into touring car racing and not be spending abnormal amounts of money.
2: What's the what's the budget now for the tournament for the British touring car championship?
1: Um, we haven't done it for two years, but we reckoned that uh, we were looking at uh, something round about four hundred, four hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Um, a lot of people operate on less, you know, some people go in at 250, to depends how, you, I mean, for a front running team like Dynamics or Triple Eight or people like that, I can't see they're running on a lot less than three hundred and fifty, four hundred thousand 400,000 pounds. That's big money. Per car. Per car. And yeah. if, you're, you know, if you're running two or three cars, it's a lot of money to find. I mean, you know, there's some good teams. And if you look at the moment at Motorbase, cracking little team, well run, nicely done you know they lost uh, airwaves this year as a sponsor they're not there this year mm-hmm. and it's it's sad
0: yeah i agree um, maybe we could persuade you to come back for part 2 one day because for example we haven't even mentioned the sultan of brunei there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a story which we're not going to go into right now, but who knows, we might get Mike to go into that another time. I mean, there are so many things we haven't even talked about. Thank
1: God for that. I thought you were going to ask me for a song to finish. <laughs> <coughs> can I just, can I just ask, ask one more thing? I mean, you were talking earlier about the
3: success of the, the Marlborough system, and it did, it did bring a lot of people through, but it was also quite brutal in some ways. I mean, I'm just thinking of Alan McNish, who Vauxhall Lotus, success, Formula 3, success. First year in Formula 3000, success. A rubbish second year in Formula 3000 through no fault of his own and was dropped like a stone. It didn't always seem a particularly sympathetic system.
1: I think the problem was that, uh, again, with Alan, could have been a little bit of timing, but basically um, he did get um, his McLaren test drive out of it. Yes. Which was the opportunity for him to go forward. Um, It just happened to you know, coincide with the fact that uh, McLaren were fairly well fixed at that time um, and he was in a difficult place yes it was brutal but we did it the whole package was a bit more than um, just giving them the money to go racing with I mean I don't know how much time we got but I'll finish you with this story we uh, when we set it up we decided what the budget would be say for a 3000 team and offer it to the team that was going to do it but we always told the driver we had to find £20,000 more. So they didn't walk into it thinking, well, that's it, I don't have to do anything. So they all had to go out and find twenty grand for auxiliary um, budgets. It's still quite cheap for an F3000, so it's oh, twenty was, grand, pounds yeah. yes. Yeah, but it was something. <laughs> yeah. So I spoke to Modena very late on, around about January, and he said, uh, I said, have you got your money yet? What's going on? Uh, I have a man down here. You come down and see him. So I jumped on the plane and I went down there, picked me up at the airport and drove me into the Ferrari factory. We went in and met Mr. Ferrari. And uh, he, through his interpreter, said, did I think he was any good? And I said, yes, I think he's very good. And I think he will be okay. And uh, he said, "Uh, right, okay, very good. Good. We will help. And I had um a book on ferrari with me a hardback book and i said uh, i do feel bad about this but could you sign this for me and he did and he said something in italian to the lady and she came back with the same book but in a beautiful hand-tooled uh, brown leather case with a ferrari on and he signed it and we went down to see him not long before he died just after we won the championship when we were building the formula one cars and he said, "And uh, what engines are you going to run? And I said, well, we have to run a Cosworth. And he said, he called, I think it was Piccinini at the time, he called him in and said, uh, how many of those turbos do we have? And the answer came. And um, because they were going back to normally aspirated yeah. and there was a <coughs> year yeah. when you could run either. And, well, um, oh, they have enough. You don't need to rebuild. Use the turbo. <laughs> and... I was dreading getting on the phone. I was excited, but I was dreading getting on the phone to Jenkins and saying, Forge- <laughs> for, 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 "Forget, forget, free <laughs> Ferrari for for nor- normally aspirated <laughs> Cosworth. We're going to run the turbo tow- <laughs> Ferrari. But uh, it never happened because a uh, Mr. Ferrari died, and once he died, the idea died with him, and so it never happened. So we went forward with the Cosworth. But uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him twice, which was a rare, rare honour. I mean, fantastic. Great we, story. We talked for a long time about John Barnard and Maggie Thatcher. That's what we talked <laughs> so about. He did, worship,
2: yeah, he did. Yes. Yeah. 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 He always said, no, he is, it was is no. It's what Italy needs. Yes. Yeah. It was. Almost, he yeah, always yeah, said yeah, Barnard
1: yeah. marched his men into battle as though they were troops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great story. Not yeah. that John Barnard I knew, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, it's a great story to end on, mate, and thank you so much for joining us today on, on our for having uh, me. Motorsport Magazine podcast. Have you still got the book? I guess you have. Ferrari book.
1: Yes, I have, somewhere. I don't know exactly where it is. It's Better than only, a pension scheme, right? Yeah, no, I'd never sell it. It means no. too much to me. I tell you what, Rob, I might leave it to you. Oh, wow. <laughs> I did only say might. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Um, Nigel, would you anything you'd like to ask Mike before we close? Seeing as you did describe the launch of the Onyx Formula One team is in the worst possible taste. Is there anything you'd like? Jesus, to... Jesus, your
2: past comes back to yes. Yes, <laughs> um,
0: yes. it's a consequence of. Uh,
2: well, all right. Yes, For all the drivers you've worked with. Who, which which driver, which driver A did you think was the best, and and which did you enjoy working with the most?
1: Probably enjoyed. Well, working with most was Pyrrho because you can't help but enjoy yourself with Pyrrho I mean um, mm. there's a host of stories about mm, Pyrrho mm. but I um, uh, probably can't tell them but anyway <laughs> um, but probably the best driver potentially was Modner I don't think anybody ever saw just how good he was yeah. he absolutely we used to have a running gag in the thing I used to think Prost was everything i had ever wanted to see in a driver I thought he was fantastic mm. and from very early on he said oh he will not live with Senna. he will not live with Senna. Senna is and he absolutely idolized Senna. and it to a large extent was mutual as i say when we were at um spa during the 3000 race we were on the downhill pits and they were up top and he was walking down one night and he said how did you i said i think he's second and he said oh, all right he's going to be very good when he <laughs> gets to Formula one he will be a threat yeah. and he rated him and he was he was just so, so only driver I've ever seen when we were sort of. Oh, one more story. Sorry, you will be all day. Okay. Um, we were at Longa, and we were normally in the top three or four of, of qualifying, and uh, uh, ninth or tenth. And I said to him, "Right, okay, what's wrong? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I drive today a little bit like my sister." <laughs> I said, well, "I said through the cutting at the back. Are you flat? No." Mm -hmm. I said, Well, I promise you, if the car's good and you've got new tyres on, that's flat. And he said, Oh, okay. He went out with the tyres on, came in, dropped it on pole, came in, flicked the visor up. I plugged in because no ship to shore in those days. And I said, "Uh, There you go. Was it flat? And he said, Yes, but only once. But, he beli- but if he believed you, he would do anything. He was he was uncanny in his um, understanding of what was going on in the car. He knew everything that was going on in the car. You could make very small changes, and he'd say, oh, that is not correct. Check it again." And he was generally right. And <coughs> but I mean, he he won the championship that year.
3: And the, I mean, the March eighty seven B wasn't the greatest no, car we, March produced, was it? I mean, no, a lot we, of other teams struggled with it. I know you got yeah. We started
1: to we started with um, because we were the sort of semi works team. We started, um, I think they had 11, and by the fourth race, there were our two. Mm. Everybody sold them.
3: Everyone had gone to Lola's or whatever, yeah. yeah. Yeah, And
1: We found a solution to what the problem was. It was offered to other people, but by then they didn't think it would work. And It was nothing very clever. It was just the way we packed the dampers, to be honest. Took the suspension out of it, effectively. Um, But basically, um, it wasn't a great car, but he did a great job with it. You know, he was uh, Birmingham was a good race for him. Yeah, that was very good. Emmerdale uh, was the best because it was his home race. Um, but yeah, you no, he was he was pretty special. And in answer to the question, I'd say the people I worked with, not necessarily at the top of the. Of, uh, he never, I, I never saw him as good as he could have been. I'd have loved if Bernie had carried on. He'd been at Brabham's. Mm. I think he would have been a a star when he got to Tyrrells and Jordan both those teams I mean Eddie was playing with the Yamaha I think at the time and uh, Tyrrell were in a bad place and so he never got the chance
0: great good well I'm afraid we're out of time but um, maybe we can persuade Michael to come back uh, during the winter for part two because there's many 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 more stories and you know what I just want to finish by saying one of the nice things about going to interview drivers from the past for Motorsport Magazine is almost every one of them says, "Hey, how is Mike?
1: You good? What's the Mike doing?"
0: It's and very when's he nice. going to pay me? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, when's he? No, no, I have to say, nearly every driver I've ever worked with has still got a Christmas card from, yeah. which is quite nice. Absolutely. You know.
0: Yeah still a sport as well as a business eh yeah absolutely
1: thank you very much great to have Michael
0: here today and uh, thanks to Simon Aaron to Nigel Roback and of course to Ed Foster who makes all this possible for us and to Alan Hyde who records it all it's goodbye from them and goodbye from me see you next time